appreciate Chad's comments. Couldn't help but hear him making a make a statement about my study through the book of John. You may, uh, if you hadn't been, haven't been been here. Well, we won't touch on that. It's just kind of like the I think the song Hotel California. Uh, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. That's kind of my series. You know, most nights I lay down, I takes me a, just a few minutes to go to sleep, and I generally sleep all night long. I might wake up once, maybe twice a night, but really I'll just sleep throughout the night. I love kids. I, I, I'm, I'm glad they're crying. It just makes me know that they're here, and that's a good, good thing. But last night, I, I had a difficult time going to sleep, and I had a difficult, I kept waking up. I don't even, I, I don't know how many times I woke up. And every time I was, I woke up, I was thinking of today's lesson. Uh, it's, it's really a, an exciting passage. It's challenging. Uh, I hope that it will be the same for you. That it will be something that will motivate you and excite you and challenge you at the same time. And I, I'm titled, I, I don't like this title. A lot, a lot of my titles I don't like. But it's like I've got to put something up there. So the best I could do is four who questions with the same answer. As we come into this section, we're going to see some who questions, and they all generally have the same answer, and there's no way I can cover all four. We're just going to look at the first who question. And I think if one thing that social media has shown us, has taught us, and most, I mean, a large part of society is on social media, is that everyone has an opinion. Everyone has something to say. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. It doesn't matter what the tone of the, of the post is. Sometimes I've seen just these positive, uh, uplifting posts that are, 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 that are intended to encourage. And yet if you read the comments, they, you get all sorts of things. Negative, uh, positive, just all over the board. And so as I come through here, uh, Paul is asking some questions. They should have obvious answers. You should know the answer to these questions. And if this was posted on social media, I, I was almost tempted in the early in the week to do it, but I just don't have enough followers to, to, <laughs> to merit a, a study. But if this was put out on social media in an area where thousands of people were following it would be it would not surprise me the varied and contradictory answers or comments that you would have in fact in these verses verses 31 where we pick up today all the way through 35 he asks not one question but seven questions he's going to ask seven questions and they aren't standalone questions but they're questions that are all rooted in what Paul has been saying how do you respond in view of all that's been laid out before us. I was telling Lindsay the other day, I was, I'm tempted to 
entitled this Wowzers. <laughs> but I think that would come across maybe irreverent. And so I didn't title it Wowzers. But being amazed, being almost stunned because of these overwhelming facts would not be inappropriate. Losing sleep is not inappropriate as you meditate on these, this passage. And yet, as we look at this, it, it would not surprise me if some listening online or some listening in the audience just responds in an apathetic way or just unappreciative of what is said. And I think our world... I'm reading a, a book right now that was written in 1936 of how life was in the early part of the century. And I think that's not that long ago. And, and I know for those who are younger, that seems like a long time ago. But, you know, we know Clyde. Clyde was born in 1928, 7, 8, am I right? 1928. And where I'm reading right now is in the late 20s. So this is about the time Clyde was born. And so you know people that were born in this era. And so we're used to luxury. You know, you can get on a plane and almost every place you go now. In fact, where I'm in the story right now, this man is traveling from England to India by plane, and it takes him seven days. <laughs> seven days and we're we're used to that flight with we're that's a long flight I mean it's like a I don't know 15 16 20 hour flight something like that but you know we're we're just so used to to easy we've forgot we're forgotten about how tough things can be we're so used and many have have um, never experienced doing without uh, think of cell phones. That's recent history, really. Cell phones, internet, entertainment, refrigerators, electricity, running water, both hot and cold, grocery stores filled with food just for us to go and buy. And we, we expect that as our right. We expect that to happen. And yet... We forget those are privileges. Those aren't rights. Those are privileges. And until right after World War II, and this is beyond, this is before I was born now, but my reading, up to World War II or so, the, these were rare in the world. Oh, they, there, there was electricity some places, but it was rare to find things like this throughout the world. You go to travel throughout the world, and it was a difficult thing. And you might go somewhere and find no running water. You have to gather your water. And so we live in a country where it's normal for us to have in, in America and in many places in the world a well-organized children's Bible program. Teen activities with weekends with thousands of other Christian teenagers. It's normal to have a campus ministry with mentoring and retreats and weekly fun and study and food. And we expect to meet in comfort on Wednesdays and Sundays and online 
and listen to well-prepared lessons. And we see those as our rights, not our blessings. And even in this present era where it's limited, we still expect the lights to be on and the Internet to be working and there to be a level of comfort that we expect as a right. And as wonderful as these things are, they're wonderful. I wouldn't do without. I, I wouldn't voluntarily say I don't want running water anymore or a good Bible class. And as much as we should be doing them, I think there's a temptation to just take it all for granted and end up being apathetic to these blessings. The biggest complainers are often those who have the most. And I place myself right there in in that. Just expecting my car to turn on when I turn the key. Expecting the door to open when I reach over there and open it and found out a few minutes ago it wouldn't open, I had to roll the window down. <laughs> but you just expect these things to happen. So Paul is asking a series of rhetorical questions, questions that should have obvious answers, but questions that are designed to for each of you to answer this question yourself. It's not for me to really answer. Just I'm going to stimulate your thinking, but you have to answer the question. And you can type them out, your answer out, in the comment section, in your private, personal comment section. And let's read these two verses here. In Romans 8, 31 and 32, where he says, What then shall we, shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I mentioned there were seven questions here, and they're interlocked. And the way I'm planning on dividing this is into four series of questions, who questions. And some of these who questions are connected to, the, to a previous question. And so we're going to look at these who questions together. And the first thing he says here, though, is what shall we say? And this, this first question that he introduces this section on is the basis or the foundation of all the other questions. This is his beginning here. He says, what shall we say to all these things? And when he says all these things, it means in view of all the things I previously uh, stated. Or he's saying... Uh, another way of, of looking at this is he says, facing everything I've just said, and the, and the visual here, the concrete visual thing that, you, that should be in your mind, as Paul is facing this myriad of things that he stated to us, and he said, in view of that, facing all these things, what, left, what is left to be said? We have to look at all these questions through the lens of what Paul has been saying. And we've reached a peak. Have you ever walked through the mountains and you see a peak and you say, well, when I get to that, I'll be at the highest point. And you get there and beyond there, there's another peak that's higher. Or we used to just drive. Or if you've been driving through the mountains and you drive and, you know, and you see that peak and there's another peak. We thought we were at the peak when we saw... That, that verse where it said, we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him. Wow. There's a mountain peak right there. 
But we looked in the distance and we see another peak higher than that. We've come to another level, you could say, a higher level as we enter these verses. One scholar was who know, knew Roman history and Roman, the orator Cicero, who's supposed to be one of the greatest orators of time, says, what has Cicero ever said more grandiloquently? And Linsky's in his commentary answered that by saying, poor Cicero never had a subject like this, nor a mind so filled with spiritual insight. The greatest orator of time who could speak and lift your souls could never say something as grand as what we're looking at today. And so when we say, what can we say to this? What is, what is left to be said? The answer is there's nothing left to be said. What could be said? A proper response would just be to stand in law awe and think about this. A proper response would be like John who saw the risen Christ and he fell at his feet. A proper response would be like Isaiah who would say, here am I, send me, as he saw the glory of God. A proper response would be like David who danced for joy as the ark was being brought into Jerusalem. These things... What shall we say to these things? What are the these things that he's talking about? And it could be just that previous verse, but I think it goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 7, which we did not have a sermon on because there would have been two sermons on this one, where he says, those who are loved by God. I'm writing this to those who are loved by God. You can just take that phrase and walk around Huntsville this week and thinking, what does it mean that I am loved by God? And who are called to be saints. Did you know you were a saint? Saint Linda. <laughs> yeah, you are. Saint Tim, Saint Ryan, Saint Alan. You're all saints. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. And so just to be you know, we, we think about St. Augustine, St. John, St. Paul. Yeah, they were saints too. But you're a saint if you're in Christ. And so he goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7. He says, you're called to be loved by God and you're called to be saints. And then he spends a couple of chapters saying, and you don't deserve it. About two and a half chapters says, you don't deserve to be loved by God and you don't deserve to be called saints you don't deserve God's love and grace and mercy but he offered righteousness he offered a right relationship with him through faith in Christ Jesus and then when we come into that relationship he justified us freely there was no cost to you he justified you he made you just as if you had never sinned and these things include peace with God when you get over to chapter 5 and access to his grace you 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 you're, it's like you have access to a bank account you have access to his grace you rejoice in sufferings you have reconciliation this means you're free from the wrath or the justice of God based on your merit you're free from living under the tyranny of sin and law and death 
these things including the Holy Spirit living within you, being adopted into his family, living in Christ, and I left out most of it. All these things. In view of all that, what can be said? What is your response to these things? He has filled your life to overflowing. And are we going to be typical Westerners? And I, I've traveled enough to know it's not just Americans. There's an attitude throughout the world in every country I've ever been to of ho-hum. What does it matter? I've seen that before. I've heard that before. So what? In view of all these things, is, is that going to be our response? So what? Time for a nap. Are we going to stand in awe and just say, I cannot believe this is what he's done? And so we ask that first question. So who is against us? What's your answer to that question? You can say, well, my boss is against me. My spouse is against me. My health is against me. The government's against me. Everything, all these things. You can have a list of things who are, are against against us but the the question is tied to the first part of that where he says if God is for you who can be against you and this if doesn't mean if God is and if he may not be he might he may not be it's a conditional sentence of course but it's not based on the quality of love you have for him it's not based on how much you love God it's not based on how well you've lived your life it's not based on certain sins you did not commit. Oh, I did not commit certain sins, so okay, I, that's, I, I'm good. It's not based on any of that. This if actually means if and certainly it is so. It's called first class conditional if you want to know the grammar. If and certainly it is so. And so we could, it would not be wrong to, to put in the word since instead of if. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Since God is for us, who cares who's against us? That's really what he's saying. If God is for you, who cares? Yeah, the world's against you. Yes, my health is going down. Yes, I'm having financial problems. Yes, my spouse just gives me grief all the time. Yes, I have this problem. But he says, if God and since God is for you, who cares who's against you? And there is a basis or a condition. The word if means there's a condition. It's, it's, it implies a condition. It means something like this. If you are nice to me, I will, then I will take you to lunch. There's a condition there. You can't be mean to me and, me, and then say, hey, when are we going to go to lunch? No, I made the condition. If you are nice to me, then I'll take you to lunch. You weren't nice to me, so I don't take you to lunch. So what's the if here? If God is for us, what's the condition here? And the condition is found in verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the condition. The condition, again, is God-centered. The gospel, again, is shown to be Based in God's actions, not based in my actions. The condition is based on God's impetus, his movement, his, what he did 
and not in response to what I did. I do have a reaction to God's action. I do have a response to his gift. But I am not the cause of God's grace. I'm not the cause of what he's done. I'm just the recipient of it. The condition is based on what he did. If God is for us and it's based on this statement he did not spare his own son his his past actions guarantees his future response he says he did not spare his own son that 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 means everything in history in the past prior to the cross pointed to the cross and then everything since then points back to the cross we're, we should be cross Christ-centric in our thinking. Everything centers around this. It sums up the love of God. It ex- sums up the extent of his love for humanity. It shows the totality of the burden of sin that was placed on the divinity in order to take care of humanity's sins. It says his own son. It, says, it, it, it means his, his special, his unique his divine son. This is not just anyone. This is someone in a unique relationship with God. And so we can say the Bible is summed up in that single sentence. There's a little nuance here in the Greek. And those who know the language say this. This word is too subtle to be represented in English. All right, we have a word here. It's, it's subtle. It's hard to translate. And one, one said, uh, we have no word so delicate and hence generally omitted when translating. And so I look at that word and say, but it's there for a reason. What, what does that mean? It's an emphatic word. It's actually placed there for emphasis that we miss. And so the best I could do is God who really did not spare his own son. It's as if Paul is trying to get, he's got us by the lapels and he's trying to really tell us something. He says, God, who really did not spare his own son. And it's not something just to be brushed over. He's trying to emphasize this. Or, or something like this, God, will you just grasp this, grasp this, that God, he did not spare his own son. And so Paul is saying, I want you to immerse yourself in this thought. I want you to center your life here. God, creator, the almighty, the judge of the earth, who had every right to toss you aside into the garbage heap of Gehenna. Instead... He did not hold, withhold his son from you. He could have spared him and not spared you. But he did not spare his son, so he could spare you. And Paul is saying, I've thought about that. I've written all this about the gospel, and I just want you to grasp this. I want you to gain this. I want you to hold on to this. Therefore, if God, the creator, will do this for you, 
what won't he do for you? Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, the sum total of everything we need in every circumstance of life? His grace is abundant. He gives us the ability to handle the sufferings. We already talked about that. And just aside, Tom spent two, the last two Sundays that tied right in, I think, in a better way than what, what I was talking about, that the sufferings. Uh, if you didn't listen to what he said, go back and listen to it online. But he just tied it right in that, his, that the, the sufferings and the glory and how that ties in to what he's saying. But he gives you, he doesn't take away the sufferings, but he gives you the grace to handle the sufferings. He gives you the, the power to endure death. He gives you the strength to endure life right now. He doesn't take away the discomforts. He doesn't take away the sufferings. But he gives us along with Christ who is living with us, in us, all that is necessary to thrive. So here's the question. Do you believe God is on your side? And if you do, what's your response? The real question is, what am I going to do with this? Since God is on my side, how am I going to live right now? Otherwise, this is just a beautiful passage of poetry. This is just one of those grand sections of writings that lift us up and make us feel good, like a good crying movie, and you, then you go on and it never changes your life. But it's, if this is true and it's real, how, what, what's your response to this? Psalms 27. We're not going through the whole thing. This is, this is part of the first three verses which I really think speaks to what we're talking about, where he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then he begins listing different things. He says, When evil men advance against me, when my enemies and foes attack me, though an army besiege me, though war break out against me. Then he says, My heart will not fear even then will I be confident. Do we really believe that? When I read this verse, I, I think of my, my little friend Demetrius. I was in a foreign country. I was being mistreated. I was a little the skinniest little kid on the playground. <laughs> I was a foreigner. It was a bully that bothered me every day. Demetrius was a foreigner too, he was from Greece. And he came up to me and said, I, I noticed that, uh, what's his name, the big bully is bothering you. I'm like, yep. He said, don't worry about it. I'm going to be standing around the corner. And when I went out on the playground, the bully came. I can see his ugly face right now. <laughs> he was a mean kid. And he put his fist in my face and he was telling me how many teeth he was going to knock out and Demetrius walks up. Demetrius wasn't too much taller than me, but he was about as wide as I was tall. He was a big boy. And he just told him, you touch him again, you're going to be touching me. We'll go down together. <laughs> and then he, he left me alone on the playground. Later on, he knocked me out with a rock. <laughs> Different story. 
Now you know why I am the way I am. But this became a favorite song of mine in 1977 when I was, when I spent several weeks in communist Hungary and Yugoslavia. I saw the fear of people walking the streets. I had people turn me away from their doors when I knocked on the door because they were afraid that a neighbor would tell that a foreigner had come to their house. I sang in whispers because people were afraid, fear. A lady showed me the blood stains on the concrete where a man had been killed the night before right in front of her apartment. There was fear everywhere. And I came on this psalm, and it became one of my favorite. That whole psalm is beautiful, by the way. And so what is your current fear? If God is for you, what, what's your current fear? What are you afraid of right now? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When communism advances against me, when a virus attacks me, though the government besiege me with rules and regulations and restrictions, though I cannot breathe without offending someone. And let me tell you, all those things are secondary. I really don't care. Well, I shouldn't say don't care. This sounds bad. I'm not primarily concerned with your opinion on communism and socialism. I've been in both. Lived in co uh, uh, socialist country and traveled in communist countries. I have an opinion. You want my opinions? Take me out to lunch. I'm really not concerned whether you think the current virus is bogus or the worst thing since the bu bubonic plague or somewhere in between. That's not my primary concern. Or what you think of masks or what you think of the restrictions or closed businesses, that's not the primary concern here. Let me tell you what I think the primary concern is. We become so focused on those things that we lose focus on what we should be focusing on. We become so focused on these and many, many other things, whatever is, is in your life and whatever will be in your life in the future, that we lose focus on the one thing that sets our course right. And he says it down, I think, in verse 8, where he says, To you, O my heart, he has said, seek my face. And what was David's response to that? Your face, Lord, will I seek. You see, the reason I'm not primarily concerned about all those things, even your marriage and how things are going with your raising your children, and all the, those, are not, those are secondary concerns. Because I know that if you do this, if you seek God's face, if that's your primary focus in your life, then you will handle your marriage the way God wants you to handle your marriage, and you'll handle your children the way God wants you to handle it. And you'll handle all the stresses of life the way God wants you. If you're focused on him, if that's what you're doing, if you're seeking his face, that's my primary concern. 
And then my counseling afterwards, you're having problems in whatever area of your life. We'll talk about those secondary concerns, but I guarantee you this. As we talk about those secondary concerns, I'm going to point you to my primary concern. Are you seeking God's face? If you've ever been in a counseling session with me, you know this is our textbook. And when we go through your problems, your struggles, this is where we find the answers. Are you seeking God's face? trying to put this in a paraphrase help us understand it I wrote in view of all these things what is left to be said since God's focus is for our interest and for our betterment does it matter a whit who opposes us grasp this God's own specially loved and divine son he did not cling to but turned him over he gave him up for each and every one of us how could one with such sacrificial generosity not graciously give us, along with him, the totality of what we need? Where your focus lies, so lies your fear. You all have fear. We all have fear. And the beautiful thing about being a Christian, you can decide where your fear lies and really what kind of fear you have. Peter, we all, most of us, I think, know the story. Jesus is walking the water. Peter gets out. He walks to, to Jesus. And then the story says when he saw the strength of the wind and the waves, when his focus turned on the strength of the winds and the waves, he sank. He began sinking. You see, he, he focused at first. His focus was where it needed to be on Jesus. And then he saw what was happening around him in the world and he transferred fear of God to afraidness of things. And he sank. I found two passages that should encourage us as we close. The first one's in Proverbs. In the fear of the Lord, and this, I had a whole sermon on this. It's not the afraidness of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord. That means I'm placing, I'm, I'm putting my focus and my confidence and my salvation and everything in the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. I have a place that they can hunker down in. And this one in Isaiah is a beautiful one where he says, And he will be the stability of your times. Whoa. We talk about the instability of our times. Listen, it's been an unstable time since Adam sinned, okay? We're just aware of it more sometimes than others. But he says, and he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Why? The fear of the Lord is his treasure. That's where his focus is, is on the Lord. If God is for you, who can be against you? You get to decide. You can decide I'm going to be afraid of things or I'm going to have the fear of God. I can live in fear of the instability of the times or I can have the Lord, the fear of the Lord, as my treasure. And I encourage you all, if you're outside of a relationship with God, this is the answer. 
to the stability of our times. If God is for us, who can be against us? God bless us all as we try and live for him in this way.